Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 264, Nacho Average Experiment. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. Today, we'll be talking about nachos. No, not that. It's unsurprisingly an acronym that stands for Nanosatellite Atmospheric Chemistry Hyperspectral Observation System. This instrument could make it easier to monitor volcanic activity and air quality in cities, neighborhoods, and power plants here on Earth on a much smaller scale than what's previously been measured. Nachos launched earlier this year on Northrop Grumman's 17th resupply mission to the International Space Station to monitor atmospheric trace gases like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide. Nachos has since been deployed from the International Space Station into a one-year journey in low Earth orbit, and in fact, they were able to launch another Nachos CubeSat into orbit. So to discuss the Nacho experiment, we have Nacho's principal investigator, researcher, and task lead with the Space and Remote Sensing Group at the Department of Energy's Los Alamos National Laboratory, Steve Love. Steve received a bachelor's degree in physics from Washington State University, where he then went on to earn his PhD in physics from Cornell University in 1991. He joined Los Alamos National Lab immediately thereafter. Since 1994, Steve has worked in the laboratory's space and remote sensing group, where his primary focus has been the development of new techniques and instrumentation for optical remote sensing and imaging spectroscopy. With that, if you're hungry, grab a plate of nachos and let's talk about nachos. Enjoy. Steve Love, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Very good to be here. Hey, this is very timely that we're talking. Um, I know we've been trying to talk for a while, even ahead of when uh, Nachos launched to the International Space Station, but... It seems uh, it seems like this is probably one of the better times to actually talk to you because now, um, when you know, as we were talking a little bit, just warming up before before uh, getting into the recording, you let me know that there is actually two nachos in space right now, two nachos CubeSats. So it seems uh, it seems like a very exciting time. Um, is is t- t- tell me about that? Uh, you know, just where you are is is uh, you know this this seems to be a better time for you. Uh, yeah. So. Um... Uh, Nachos 1, our original Nachos that went to the space station, it was deployed uh, out of the Cygnus vehicle uh, on June 28th, uh, which was, I guess, about three weeks ago. And um, then just a few days later, on July 2nd, our second CubeSat, uh, which we call Nachos 2, uh, was launched into orbit aboard a uh, Virgin Orbit uh Launcher One vehicle. This is one of these um, uh, aircraft launched uh, rockets. So mm. it took off on a 747 and was dropped. And was one of Nachos Two was one of seven satellites that that rocket deployed. So you know, we weren't planning on having these uh, go up so close together, but just uh, you know the random schedule changes and stuff of these two launches, they ended up being in the same week. Uh, so yeah, it's very exciting uh, and very kind of hectic. You know, we got two satellites to to babysit and uh, bring online. Um, you know, where we're at now is we're just going through uh, the paces of bringing uh, the, the instrument online, getting the satellites 
you know, getting control of the satellite, getting satellite stabilized, running, um, you know, state of health checks. So we don't have any real science data yet. That'll be coming pretty soon. Uh, but right now we're in our um, commissioning and checkout phase. Fantastic. So it's very timely. This is great. And that's what I wanted to get into is just what, what led us to where we are right now. And then, um, like you said, there's, there's more to come. So we'll go, into, we'll go into that a little bit more. And then we'll explore just the science behind what you're doing. I wanted to start, though, Steve, by just talking a little bit about you because uh, you have an interesting background in physics. And now you're working on this uh, CubeSat that's looking at the Earth. It just seems like uh, uh, it seems like an interesting story arc for you. Can you tell me about? Um, well, let's start with physics because I'm sure you know physics for me. I struggled in high school with physics. That was definitely not something uh, that I found uh, coming easy to me. But um, you continued to pursue uh, physics in your education, so it must have been something that you were quite passionate about. Yeah, well, you know, when I started college, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be some kind of scientist. I didn't know, you know, exactly what. I was thinking chemistry. Mm. And in my chemistry classes, every time something really interesting came up, uh, like, you know, how bonds and orbitals and stuff like that uh, uh, work, I'd start asking questions about that. The professor would always say, oh, well, that's actually physics. <laughs> and after about four times of, you know, oh, this, this is really cool. I want to know more about that. And the answer is, well, that's actually physics. Uh, and I'd say, well, maybe I better be in physics and not chemistry. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's kind of what, uh, you know, things like that are what uh, turned me on to physics uh, as, as a career path. And, you know, I was always interested in space and astronomy. You know, I was of an, of an age where I, I remember the moon landings. I was a little kid at the time, but that was, mm-hmm. you know, I was like nine years old uh, when Neil Armstrong uh, walked on the moon. And that was just like the coolest thing for me as a little kid. <laughs> and that's sort of what really got me started. And then, and then you know, my dad got me a telescope you know, when I was a a kid, I was always out with the telescope and stuff. So I was always interested in space and astronomy. Uh, so, you know, physics background is good for that. And as it turned out, I didn't end up going into astronomy. Um, but... Um, but but uh, that physics that physics background was just something that it seemed like was a way to pursue this, this very early interest in space. So... Is it true yeah. that you you were using physics as a route to get you into working in the space industry? Uh, yeah, you know, always in the back of my mind. Mm. Uh, you know, as I moved through my graduate school career, you know, I decided, you know, I needed to be a bit more practical and, you know, go into something that will get me a job. So, I, you know, <laughs> I went into uh, solid-state physics, you know. It's, uh, ah. it's fascinating in itself, and... Uh, you know, you know, it's certainly something that you know gets you into the semiconductor industry or whatever. You know, uh, so anyway, I sort of dropped the space stuff, and you know, like I say, condensed matter physics is fascinating, and I, yeah, my other sort of scientific passion was light and lasers, and so you know, my doctoral work I used laser spectroscopy uh, to study uh, solids. Mm. Um, so it used use the uh, laser and impurities in solids to probe the properties of various kind of odd materials like like glasses and disordered semiconductors. Um, and so that got me into um, you know using optical probes to study 
I see the parallels here because it's the nachos. Some of the instruments on board contain some of these some of these instruments. The you know a spectrometer that I think uh, you know that's really important to whatever the science is that's being measured on nachos, and that seemed like sort of your entrance point, your expertise in spectroscopy and continuing to study that eventually let you explore your passions um, for entering into this world of space. Yeah. So, you know, I came here to Los Alamos uh, as a postdoc, mm. and I continued doing condensed matter physics. I did... Uh, and. You know, optical probes again. I did uh, infrared and Raman spectroscopy of some very strange um, quality one dimensional materials that were sort of related to the high temperatures of superconductors that were, you know, all the rage at that time. And, you know, when my postdoc wrapped up, um, you know, I needed to find uh, a job. And over in this other division at Los Alamos, um, where they do space stuff, mm. um, um, you know, a job opened up. They needed somebody who had infrared expertise. So I said, "Well, I've got that, and I'm kind of ready to, uh, you know, try something new." So I joined um, what is now called the Space and Remote Sensing Group at Los Alamos, and that's pretty much where I've spent my career. And. Uh, mm. Fantastic. That's uh, so. Yeah, and it's the it. You got to explore space and remote sensing. That's 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 the perfect place to do that. Um, and and you spent you mentioned you spending your career there. I wonder though, at what point in your career, um, did this idea of these you know uh, CubeSat going into Earth and looking at these interesting aspects of Earth? I wonder when nachos really started coming into play. Okay, well, um, when you go back to my earlier life again as a start, I mean, one thing that keeps coming back uh, in addition to space stuff is volcanoes. Mm. So I grew up in eastern Washington State. I was in college uh, when Mount St. Helens erupted. Uh, so that's one of those events that, you know, for the rest of your life, you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing on that day. Because we had this cloud of volcanic ash turning day into night and raining down an inch of ash on us. And, you know, where I was and what I was doing was I was I was about to start studying for a physics quiz the next day. <laughs> and instead, uh, you know, ended up uh, watching this event unfold. Uh, so I've always had this fascination with volcanoes. Okay, so now jump forward to uh, Los Alamos. Um a group of us decided we really would like to start developing remote infrared spectroscopy. Um, and um, one of the things we thought would be a good test bed for some of our ideas would be to look at volcanic gases um, using remote infrared spectroscopy. So, um, And so we hooked up um, with uh, some volcanologists and... So back um, kind of around 2000, uh, thereabouts, like 20 years ago, um, you know, a group of us parked uh, my infrared spectrometer uh, to volcanoes around the world, and we saw some really interesting things, um, particularly at this volcano, Popotepetl, outside of Mexico City, where I actually uh, discovered a 
um, change in the gas composition involving kind of an obscure gas, silicon petrofluoride, um, when its uh, amount suddenly started increasing, it seemed to be an indicator that an eruption was about to occur. So it was kind of a big deal. Mm. And so we did that for a few years. But, you know, Los Alamos isn't really a um, geology laboratory. So that wasn't something I could continue to pursue full time. Uh, but, you know, we demonstrated the value of the techniques, got some good science out of it. And it kind of left me with, the, you know, a fascination with volcanoes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, um, you know, around that time, we were also starting to do, uh, as a group of laboratories, Los Alamos, Livermore, Sandia, uh, started looking into hyperspectral imaging for remote uh, monitoring of chemicals. And that was fairly new at the time. And you know, as a collaboration, we built an instrument, flew it on an airplane, and you know, actually, and demonstrated this really works well. Um, so, you know, just to back up, you know, hyperspectral imaging is imaging where every pixel of the image contains a high resolution spectrum with uh, hundreds of uh, wavelength channels. Mm. So you can look at the detailed um, structure of the spectrum of gases and you know, very uh, reliably uh, distinguish one gas from another. And, um, so you know, every gas has its own spectral fingerprint of you know, um, particular wavelengths it absorbs uh, and doesn't absorb. And every chemical is different, and that's the power of spectroscopy. I mean, we can we can look at you know what stars are made of, uh, mm. um, you know. So that, it's a very powerful technique. And hyperspectral imaging, like I say, it's imaging with every pixel being a full high resolution spectrum. So that's a lot of data. Mm. Um, so at that time, that first instrument. Uh, it was huge. You know, it was several hundred pounds. Uh, we basically you know, flew it on an optics table. Uh, took up the whole payload bay of this uh, NASA high-altitude aircraft, a uh, WB-57. Um, and, you know, it kind of became clear to me, at least, that if this is going to be practical, if you want to like maybe put this in space someday, we've got to make it smaller. And so I started... Um, a series of um, instruments and inventions trying to make make this whole technique smaller and more portable. And so I had some earlier instruments, you know, within the back of the in the back of my mind, um, someday putting it on either a small drone or a small satellite. And so I, you know, I designed some miniaturized hyperspectral imagers. Um, and this is really before CubeSats were a thing. There were still, you know, there were smaller satellites, but mm -hmm. CubeSats hadn't really come uh, into being yet back then. So, But that was kind of the thrust of a lot of my work was making hyperspectral imaging uh, more portable, less power-hungry. How do you deal with this massive block of data 
where, you know, hundreds of spectral channels in every pixel and then, you know, thousands and thousands of pixels, that's a lot of data. And how do you handle that and how do you efficiently pull the information you want out of all that data? Mm. Um, so then how... Um you know that sounds very challenging, right? And that's that's not uh, yeah. that's that's not a small difference in size from several hundred pounds uh, to uh, you know a, a very large instrumentation to really miniaturizing it, and then you know eventually we'll get to the point where we talk about nachos and I mean CubeSats are small; they're like a loaf of bread size. Um, they're yeah. they're they're very small. So that's that's quite um, what I would what I would characterize as an engineering feat so I'm guessing you had you worked you know with with a lot of engineers as you were exploring ways to miniaturize some of this technology and get it small like you're saying smaller and more portable um, who were some of the folks that you were working with to explore these upgrades in technology yeah so um, engineers um, optical designers which I, I guess I count myself as one of those. Mm. Um, and also, you know, mathematicians or mathematical physicists who, uh, um, you know, work through, you know, dealing with the data in an efficient manner. Yeah. So it took a, a decent number of people to, to really put, um, to really put this thing together. So let me back up for a second, because a lot of the work that you were describing, Steve, was... You know, especially as we're as we're leading into talking about nachos itself, I think there's this there's this interesting collide of your physics and looking at spectroscopy and this um, hyperspectral technology. But there's this other component of your fascination with volcanoes, and you mentioned some work, some early work where you were going out and actually measuring some of the gases. I wonder, just in general, high level, really what is interesting uh, about these gases that are coming from volcanoes that are worth going out and measuring? Uh, yeah, well, the gases are, you know, one of the few things that tell you what's going on uh, down deep in the earth. So, uh, you know, when a volcano starts um, you know, beginning to erupt, um there are gases dissolved in uh, in the in the magma, and you know key gases are uh, water uh, water vapor and carbon dioxide. But then the next uh, uh, most uh, prominent one is sulfur dioxide, and then there's um, uh, oh, HCl and HF uh, and you know, these strange uh, gases, like I mentioned, silicon tetrafluoride. Uh, well, you know, looking at how those uh, relative concentrations change over time can give you hints of what, um, you know, what's going on, uh, what kind of magma is, is being uh, brought into play, uh, how, you know, how hot is, is it, uh, things like that. You know, volcanologists, the people who do this for a living, uh, they like to go in and get as close as possible and actually, like, stick a tube in a, in a fumarole and uh, uh, sample <laughs> the gas and, you know, and look at the chemistry of, you know, everything that's going on there, not just the rock, but the gases as well. And so that's, you know, intrinsically kind of a dangerous thing. And so, you know, this remote spectroscopy stuff that I was doing was 
you know, attempt to be able to get this information at a safer distance. You know, mm-hmm. so we went from uh, volcanologists to you know go and stick their face in the in the fumarole to uh, setting up several miles away um, and looking at you know the smoke coming out of the volcano. Depending on the volcano and what the chemistry is, it can actually give you a uh, you know kind of warning of what might be coming next. Hmm. And you know, typically a volcano when it first starts waking up, uh, the the first things that happen there might be some seismic activity, but usually there's you know there's some uh, sulfur dioxide emissions. Um, that um, you know are, are the other sign that oh yeah this volcano is no longer dormant it's starting to um, you know um, start emitting things. Mm. So when it comes to the gases that you're measuring and the instruments that you were bringing out, um, you mentioned this idea of hyperspectral imaging and getting a really wide range of uh, sensing the different gases and components that are coming out of um, volcanoes. Um, I wonder if, is this something that you were able to bring out to different um, volcanoes or did you have more limited insight based on the technology that you remotely had at the time uh, for taking these measurements? Yeah, at the time, we didn't have imagers. We ah. had a single point um, spectrometer. So you point the instrument at some place, and what I would typically do is I would point it at this, you know, the gas plume, and then I would point it at some clear sky upwind of the plume, and I would you know, uh, compare one to the other, and that way I could uh, see the gases that were in the, in the volcanic plume. Now, while I was doing that, I was really wishing that I did have some imaging. Mm. Because if you want to uh, quantify the total amount of gas coming out, you want to uh, measure you know, how big the plume is and how fast the wind is blowing. And you know, kind of the, it was kind of a dream at the time to be able to image all that. You know, saying we can measure the wind speed by watching this puff. Um, blow in the wind, and, um, and, and if you have the imaging capability, you could quantitatively uh, measure the total gas output, which is what the volcanologists are really interested in. I mean, you look at the composition, and you also look at the total amount. Because if, mm. if the amount of gas is increasing, that's also uh, you know a warning that something more is probably on the way. Um, so we didn't have anything at the time, but um, you know that's one of the motivations for wanting to have the imaging capability. I see. Okay. All right. So, so you did some work out in the field. You went to uh, these different volcanoes. Um, now, this opportunity, you know, as uh, to as you were doing this work to make this hyperspectral uh, these these instruments uh, smaller and smaller, more portable, as you say. Um, I wonder. I wonder when the opportunity came about that you got it small enough that now it was ready for space. Let's talk about. Let's talk about nachos and its inception on like getting getting ready to go. Uh, tell me about some of the the early work. Uh, yeah. So it all started about I guess about seven years ago. Um, there was a um, 
effort uh, at Los Alamos to, to build CubeSat. So they were pretty new at the time. Uh, so we had a series of CubeSats, um, and they were, they were uh, one and a half huge. I only back up. Uh, um, you know, CubeSats are um, a standard for very small satellites. And the basic building block is a four-inch cube, and that's that's the basic unit of the CubeSat standard is a four-inch cube, and that's that's called a U for unit, I guess. Uh, and so um, we had uh, we meaning Los Alamos, not me, uh, but. Uh, people in my division at Salamos had developed uh, these one and a half U CubeSats. They'd actually put quite a few of them, like a dozen of them, in orbit. Uh, and they continued developing them. And the next generation of them, they decided, well, we could actually add a payload hosting capability. I mean, they had their own internal instrument, which, which is a radio frequency instrument, um, but they thought, well, you know, we've got the satellite technology for all the um, uh, attitude control and uh, communication and telemetry and all that stuff. Uh, so we could actually host a payload. Um, and so the next generation they built, they designed it with this sort of plug-and-play interface, uh, which could accommodate another one and a half U um, payload. So altogether, you'd have a three U um, CubeSat. As you say, that you know, three U CubeSat is just about the size of a loaf of bread. You know, it's mm. four inches by four inches by twelve inches. Uh, and so, um, it was basically a brainstorming session. Uh, got together with those guys. Uh, it was myself and an atmospheric scientist. Uh, Mandendra Dubey and Nick Dahlman, who was leading that CubeSat effort at the time, uh, and a couple of young engineers, uh, Logan Ott, a mechanical engineer on Nachos. He's been there uh, from the very beginning, and he was just uh, you know, just barely out of school at the time. Um, so just this, this small group of us got together and started talking about, well, what what kind of payload should we put on one of these? And you know, everybody looks at me, hey, Steve, could you uh, maybe fit one of your hyperspectral imagers in a, a one-and-a-half-U uh, um, you know, package? And I thought, well, that's a challenge, but uh, <laughs> let me look into it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and you know, chatting with... Jubei, uh, um, the atmospheric scientist, you know, well, what do we need you know, what kind of sensitivity, what should we look at, um, uh, how good does the instrument need to be? And again, you know, the answer came back, you know, well, that's kind of challenging. Let me see if I can do anything. So, you know, so I went back and did some preliminary designs, did some calculations of sensitivities that we could achieve and spectral resolution that uh, we could achieve in a package that small. And, you know, surprise, surprise, actually, you know, this looks doable, just barely, but I think it's doable. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I joined up an optical design um, 
and actually made it and made the design fit, you know, at least on paper. Um, actually, the optics all fit in a 1U uh, cube, and then we reserved a half U, you know, uh, two inches by four inches by four inches for, for the electronics. And so we went through a series of uh, projects. Uh, we originally went straight to NASA and proposed this uh, to launch a constellation of these things we've never built. And you know, it was just to be um, you know, a little bit too ambitious and unproven at the time. Uh, so then we went to our internal uh, funding, and we, we got a fairly large internally funded project uh, which we called uh, Targeted Atmospheric Chemistry Observations from Space. Uh, and that little acronym, TACOS, <laughs> uh, that, that was uh, uh, Logan, uh, mechanical engineer, Logan and I came out with that one. So our original project was called TACOS. And that was all internally funded uh, with Alamos money. And we went through, you know, the full design and and prototyping of this concept and got it to the point where, uh, yeah, we have a working prototype um, that's almost, you know, space deployable now. And that's when we proposed to NASA or Science Technology Office in their uh, INVEST call, that's the in-space validation of Earth science technologies. And if we were mature enough in our technology at that point that we, you know, we, we won that proposal and, and um, the powers that be said that, well, this is a new project and you need a new name. <laughs> so uh, we actually uh, put our heads together and said, well, okay, our first project was called Tacos, so let's stick with the Mexican food theme. <laughs> what can we come up with? <laughs> Uh, it was kind of a it was kind of a group effort, and we came up with nachos, which is nanosat atmospheric chemistry hyperspectral observation system. It's actually uh, you know an even more descriptive name than the original uh, taco, so that's exactly what it is. Oh, uh, fantastic! So, so that's uh, that's how na- nachos came about. Uh, um, I don't know what we're going to do, you know, the next project if it's going to be. <laughs> Uh, salsa or enchilada or what. But, uh, <laughs> I feel like uh, the more complicated it is, you know, the, the longer the word, you know. As you'll get to a point right. where you'll be naming a, 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 a satellite quesadilla, you know. Have fun with that one. That'll be interesting. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Okay, awesome. Uh, well, well, congratulations. You know, I know it seems like it was a combination of you know, a little bit of timing and a little bit of uh, preparation too. your efforts into some of these other ways sort of prepared you so that when you were able to get this award for for this earth science um, uh, part of things that you just happened to have the right maturity and the right expertise in the proposals and, and all of that where you finally got the opportunity to to launch to space. That's right. Yeah. Very good. All right, so um, you got you got it down. You got the you got the technology down to uh, the size that you wanted. Uh, you started building it. Talk about the process of uh, once this thing was uh, you know built. What you did to test it, and then eventually get it integrated into um, Northrop Grumman Cygnus. Uh, yeah. So um, you know, there's a whole sort of standard slew of tests. You know, first we had to. And, you know, test the optics, uh, you know, and, and uh, actually, actually, you know, there was uh, quite a bit of work going from 
the design to uh, reality of the spectrometer, uh, there were some um, issues that came up when we were building it, like our grading uh, was manufactured backwards. Uh, we couldn't figure out why we weren't getting enough light, very much light through the system at all, so we realized, oh, it's... Uh, uh, the diffraction grading is sending light to the opposite direction of where it's supposed to go. You know, a whole bunch of little uh, problems like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, coming up with a technique for uh, aligning and focusing this tiny little uh, instrument, that's, you know, the smaller you make things, uh, the smaller the adjustments you have to make. Uh, and one of the real challenges was uh, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to you know, put motors on mirror mounts and things like that and focus things in space. We had to, you know, focus it on the ground. We had to build it uh, rigid and robust enough that it could survive launch and stay in focus. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we went through several iterations of our optics mounts, uh, making them heftier and stiffer. Uh, and, and, you know, every time we would... Uh, you know, do a vibration tape uh, test. So we, you know, there are, we have a vibration testing shake table that uh, uh, mimics the vibrations of a rocket. And you can actually program in the vibrational uh, spectrum of a particular rocket if you want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's NASA standards for, um, you know, how hard you have to shake it to, um, to imitate what an actual launch would be like. So, you know, we would design the optics, get everything aligned, uh, shake it, and find out, oh, it went out of focus. Uh, okay, we need to modify that now. Okay, let's try it again. And finally, after about three iterations, okay, we got we got a design that works. Uh, and so then, you know, we had the optics uh, in place. Right? And then, uh, you know, it's not just the optics, it's all the electronics. Uh, everything has to survive that. So you do the vibration test, and then you have to simulate the space environment. So the other uh, major part of the testing is thermal vacuum testing. So you put it in a vacuum chamber that you can cool down the walls of, uh, so it imitates the the cold of of space. So we have the, the walls of the chamber cooled with uh, liquid nitrogen, uh, and you know, so then you have to run, make sure your electronics all work. Um, we had to design the optics so that it would stay in focus um, as the temperature changed. Hmm. So, you know, our spectrometer we made out of all aluminum, um, the mirrors degrading the, the, the mounts, so that when it Heated up and cooled down, it would all expand and contract in the same way and stay in focus. Um, and so we, you know, we had to run uh, the entire satellite through the thermal vacuum testing. You know, cycle the temperature down to the lowest temperature we would expect to to encounter, and up to the highest temperature. So it'd be like uh, minus uh, forty degrees C up to plus. Uh, plus 40, uh, roughly speaking. Um, I make sure everything works and survives through all those temperatures. Um, and, you know, and of course, doing that, you know, a few other things like in electronics uh, would 
break and we have to figure out why and fix it and modify it. And then finally, when you, you know, pass all those tests, you say, okay, we're, we're ready. Uh, we can, we can deliver this thing to be launched. Did you uh, get to go out to Wallops and actually watch it? I did. Yes. I went out to Wallops and that was, you know, all these years in this, uh, uh, space Technology Group. This is my very first, uh, you know, live rocket launch I ever uh, witnessed. So that was that was a that was a treat. Yeah, <laughs> a treat because not only did you get to see a cool rocket launch, but there was something that you put a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of work into on on board the vehicle. Yeah. So, um, not it was, you know, I feel like that's probably more emotional than just the average, you know, rocket watcher. Uh, yeah, well, it definitely is. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's all these sort of mixed emotions. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like you know, sending your kid off to college or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you have this machine you built, you've had your hands on for years, and now it's you know, you're watching it blast into the sky, and you're keeping your fingers crossed that it's a safe journey, and you you know, you kind of you kind of miss it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now you said, uh, you know, after after launch, um, we went through this at the at the beginning of our chat. Is since since it's launched, um, you know, enough time has passed now that it, it launched to the International Space Station, which has a CubeSat deployer, and that first uh, CubeSat has been deployed. And then you already mentioned that that another one was uh, launched as well. So now you got two Nacho CubeSats in orbit. Um, I, I feel like when we were talking about all the testing and stuff, we were talking about one. But what is the reason for that second one? Well, that's, good. that's a good question, actually. So originally, um, the the second one was meant to be a test unit. So it's kind of standard practice to build a what's called a qualification model and then the actual flight uh, uh, unit. So we've built two identical satellites, and uh, you know the idea is the qualification model you can put it through. Uh, more rigorous testing, you know, take higher risks with it, you know, of possibly breaking it while you're shaking it too hard. Mm. And then when you, you know, convince yourself that the qualification model works, then you run the, the flight instrument through, you know, the same set of tests, but not, you don't quite shake it as hard or bake it as hard. And, you know, try to be a little bit gentler with it because so, this is the real one and you already know it's going to work because you did the qualification model. So um, we had the two satellites and the qualification model passed its test with flying colors. So we have a working satellite in our hands in addition to the, you know, what was originally intended to be the, the one and only flight satellite. And um, when it came time for um, um, finding a launch, um, the, the you know we weren't quite sure if the space station orbit would work for us or not, and we actually ended up uh, because it's a rather low orbit, and we have deployable solar panels that pop out and they actually create some drag in that, you know, very low Earth orbit, uh, tenuous up, upper atmosphere. So uh, we were worried that um, the orbital lifetime wouldn't be quite as long as we would like. And so one thing we did was we actually added 
um, ballast, just some extra weight to our satellite. So the um, the as-designed satellite was about eight pounds total, and we added another five pounds of just uh, of weight to it uh, to, to make it, uh, you know, improve its um, uh, mass-to-area ratio so that drag didn't affect it as much. But anyway, during that time, we were looking into various uh, launch options, and so we applied to of the Air Force's space test program, um, and um, they really liked uh, you know our satellite, and they you know very quickly said, "Yeah, we'll we'll include you on our next launch." So, okay, <laughs> um, yeah, actually, you know the NASA launch, you know, we applied for the, the CubeSat launch initiative launch. And it was about six months before they kind of came back and said, "Congratulations, you know." You know um, but you know this uh, STP launch uh, that uh, that came back like a in a week. So now we got two launches. Um, um, basically, it, you know, little to no cost to us. Uh, so okay, well, uh, we got two satellites. Uh, let's just do it. <laughs> so you know, we we had always hoped that. Um, if the opportunity came along, we could launch our qualification model and, and, and do a second satellite. But, you know, I didn't expect the opportunity to fall into my lap quite so so quickly. Uh, so we just went ahead and, um, you know, chatted with the NASA folks, and everybody was happy with this idea. Hey, hey we're going to have two satellites. We want to do a constellation. We want to do, like, you know, 10 or 20 satellites eventually. So let's do two uh, and try to get them where, they, where their missions overlap so we can kind of, you know, test, uh, you know, having two satellites in orbit, looking at the same targets, uh, higher uh, frequency. Um, and so that all worked out great. Uh, and, you know, as I was saying, a little bit more simultaneous than we had been planning on. Uh, but um, so... Yeah, we got two satellites. <laughs> That's great. Um, you mentioned yeah. you mentioned the challenges of low Earth orbit uh, with with the extra drag and adding weight. Where where did the other one launch? Is it in that same orbit, and you had to work through the same things, or is is it somewhere else? Well, it's a little it's a little higher. So little higher. so um, the first one is basically the space station orbit. So it's about four hundred uh, and something kilometers up, uh, yeah. and the second one is at a five hundred kilometer orbit. So you know about. And a little over 300 miles up. Uh, so, you know, at 500 kilometers, uh, you know, we expect it to come down in, you know, maybe about three years. Uh, you know, these CubeSats are required to uh, come down within, I believe it's 20 years. So we don't want them to just turn it to, to space junk. Right. So we never get to launch them into super high orbit. So we, you know, CubeSats go into fairly low orbits where we know their orbit will decay and they'll, you know, be out of the space junk picture before too long. Yeah. Uh, I see. All right. Well, with two with two satellites in orbit, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, you have to, act, you know, you, right now you have two satellites in orbit. That's great. You got to go through activating them and getting them online and everything. What is in store for what these satellites are actually going to do? Let's talk about the science a little bit. What's on board um, these these hyperspectral imaging, and then what what data are they going to be sending down to you so that you can do what? Okay. So. 
you know, the actual hyperspectral images, these are uh, ultraviolet, uh, visible, the 300 to 500 nanometers, which is basically 500 nanometers is like a blue-green color, and then the spectral range extends into the near ultraviolet. Um, and so in that spectral range, uh, you can see... Uh, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, ozone, formaldehyde. Um, you can characterize aerosols, uh, distinguish uh, sort of clean, purely scattering aerosols so, you know, that just scatter the, the sunlight uh, from um, sooty aerosols from fires that absorb sun, sunlight. And that's a very important thing for the climate scientists. If you see an aerosol haze, what kind of what kind of aerosol is it? Because the sooty ones absorb sunlight and add to the warming. The clean aerosols reflect sunlight and have a cooling effect. So being able to distinguish those uh, is important. Uh, there's several other uh, volcanic gases. Uh, there's like chlorine oxide, bromine oxide, iodine oxide, and these are fairly new to um, uh, remote sensing of volcanic gases. Uh, um, so we're going to be looking at those too. So the instrument itself, um, we, you know, the P in tacos is uh, is targeted, and so we aimed this uh, to, f- to fill a, a niche that is, uh, was kind of empty. So there are other satellites, large satellite instruments, that have similar sorts of spectrometers on them, much bigger. Uh, the one we sort of modeled our capabilities on is one called... Uh, it's the ozone monitoring instrument, uh, OMI, uh, OMI, and that instrument, well, it's about 150 pounds for the instrument itself, and I told you my, our satellite with added weight is only 13 pounds. <laughs> uh, but you know, spectroscopically, it's very similar. Uh, but in terms of its imaging, uh, its mission is to map the entire globe every day. So it does it at a very coarse spectral uh, spatial resolution. Hmm. So a single OMI pixel is over a hundred square miles. It's about uh, uh, was it about eight by fifteen miles? Um, so for instance, uh, you know the entire city of Washington D.C. is about half of an OMI pixel. Um, uh, okay. And so we want to look at these same gases but do it at much finer uh, spatial resolution. So um, the nachos single pixel is about um, about um, 1,000 feet on the side, basically. Um, and 300, 300 to 400 meters excuse me, on a side. Um, so it's roughly, instead of being bigger than a city, it's about the size of a big sports stadium. That's, that's the best object I can think of. That's about the size of a nachos pixel. Mm. Okay. So 
we have, you know, these relatively tiny pixels, at least for this kind of space-based op- uh, hyperspectral observation. Uh, and so now we can look at, you know, much smaller things. You know, think about volcanoes. Um, okay, so we can see sulfur dioxide and other volcanic gases, but now we can see um, things on this uh, sort of more human scale. So, you know, instruments like OMI, they, they've uh, measured uh, gases from volcanoes, but only for very big eruptions. So if the volcano explodes and generates this cloud that wraps around the globe, uh, OMI and satellites like it can uh, can see that. But they can't see a volcano that's just waking up and just starting to fume a bit, you know, in the kind of state where volcanologists would want to go in and, you know, stick their tubes into the fumaroles. Uh, but... With uh, nacho-sized pixels, we can we can see those early stages of a volcano waking up. Um, so that's one of the exciting things. And then um, looking at so we we've kind of got two um, two thrusts here. We got the volcanology, and then we have you know, air pollution monitoring and. Uh, indirectly um, looking at greenhouse gases. So, you know, our other main target gas is NO2. Uh, NO2, nitrogen dioxide, is is the gas that makes smog look brown. Okay, that's... And it's, you know, one, it's toxic. Uh, Most of the health effects of smog, you know, lung damage, asthma, COPD, and so forth, uh, are caused by NO2. Um, NO2 and ozone, uh, which actually, you know, two is involved in making smog ozone. Hmm. Um, And so we're interested in looking at NO2 production on this fine scale and understand it's kind of complex chemistry that goes on. You know, you know, NO2 or nitrogen oxides is uh, very, you know, there's various nitrogen oxides. Um, and they're produced by heating air, uh, really hot. So internal combustion engines, uh, power plants that burn coal, uh, those are kind of the chief, uh, you know, man-made sources of NO2. Natural sources are things like lightning and forest fires, and to some extent volcanoes too. Anytime you get air, which is nitrogen and oxygen, really hot, you'll mix these uh, nitri- uh, nitrogen oxides. Mm. Um, and so NO2 is a marker for burning, um, and you know, particularly you know, burning fossil fuels like in internal uh, combustion engines or coal-fired power plants. And what's nice about it is it's very easy to detect in this um, visible ultraviolet region. It's got a very strong and distinctive spectral signature. It's much easier to detect than um, um, carbon dioxide uh, itself, uh, which is kind of tricky because there's a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, uh, you know, apart from 
you know, the pollution monitoring aspect, uh, or at least, you know, the actual uh, toxicity of NO2, uh, it's also a, a really nice tracer for greenhouse gases. It's not an important greenhouse gas in itself, but wherever you burn fossil fuels, you make uh, NO2 in addition to CO2. So, um, you know, it's a way of of tracking and quantifying uh, fossil fuel burning. There's a lot of components to this, and it seems like you're measuring a lot. You're talking about the instruments you have on board and nachos being able to to monitor, to look at, to measure exactly what's happening. But I wonder, to take it a step further, what are your hopes? Uh, as you're collecting these data and you're getting a better understanding of you know where these gases are and, and you're taking these measurements uh, and contributing these these data to the scientific community, um, do you have any like hypothesis or goal or or objective to on uh, how to compile these data and put something together to measure something? What what, what are the goals of Nacho? Uh, I guess you know the overall goal is to uh, measure these. Um, atmospheric chemistry processes um, at a much finer spatial scale than has been done before. At least that's, that's the um, atmospheric science uh, mm-hmm. side of it. And then in parallel, uh, you know, for the volcanology, this will really be the first time we can do real sort of eruption warning kind of monitoring of volcanoes from space. Uh, you know, before everything that was done in terms of looking at volcanic gases, is like, hey, you could see a big eruption after it happened, uh, hmm. but you can't see the the lead up to it because that's just too small. And so, having that, you know, tiny pixel uh, enables you to see the small early stuff. Um, but with um, going back to the um, pollution monitoring side, as I mentioned, that's you know, to the nitric, the nitrogen oxide chemistry is kind of complex. Uh, you, you burn, um, you know, fossil fuel, you get the air hot, it makes NO. Uh, that reacts with the oxygen in the atmosphere to make NO2. Uh, if there's sunlight, NO2 can react with the oxygen in the atmosphere again to make ozone uh, in addition. Uh, and then depending on whether there's sunlight or not, and, uh, you know, the reactions can go either direction. And, you know, this is all happening on a much smaller spatial scale than any instrument currently in space uh, until nachos uh uh, could uh, resolve. So, you know, all these existing instruments have sort of city-sized pixels, mm. and now we've got stadium-sized pixels. And so now we can actually, we hope, uh, you know, actually see uh, this chemistry going on in a spatially resolved uh, way and be able to feed that into uh, air quality models, uh, for instance. Uh, understand what the real chemistry is on this fine spatial scale as, you know, you convert from NO to NO2 to ozone, then go back and uh, and so forth. 
So um, now I'm getting a better understanding of why that constellation idea and that that hope for 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 you guys is um, um, is your next goal. Really, it sounds sounds like the two with these very fine measurements you're adding to the you know the scientific community something that hasn't been contributed before on this smaller scale. But maybe I'm I'm right in interpreting that with more satellites, uh, you get this fine coverage over a wider area in a shorter amount of time. So is that really your objective with this effort to try to get more satellites up there? That is exactly it, yes. Yeah, because we have this, uh, uh, you know, uh, telephoto uh, kind of look at things, we can't cover lots of area uh, with one satellite. Uh, We look at targets, um, you know, individual targets, uh, and, uh, you know, sampling when we can. We can't look at the whole world at once. But, you know, the more satellites we have, the more things we can look at, and the more frequently we can look at them. So we would like to be able to, for instance, uh, watch a volcano as it, uh, you know, goes through its process of becoming more active or watch this uh, pollution chemistry in a city uh, over the course of days or over the course of a day uh, you know, because sunlight plays such a role in in this chemistry and you know what people are doing during the course of the day matters as well and you know with one satellite you might be able to look at a given target uh, once a day, maybe. Mm. Uh, so, you know, having 10 satellites, uh, <laughs> you, you might be able to look at the same target 10 times a day uh, uh, at this, you know, much finer spatial resolution. I understand. So it's more, it's more coverage, but then it's, it's, it's uh, more regular intervals of, of monitoring some of these locations as well. And that's, and that's good right. for the data. Okay. Very good. Yeah. There's a lot of ambition here, Steve. Uh, lots, uh, lots to do, um, and I and I wonder. I want to end on just sort of a broader picture here. On um, you know, you spent a lot of time on, on um, working on these technology, and and now you have a chance to contribute some unique data to the scientific community. I wonder when you think about just the pursuit of of space as a as a place to make these measurements and the open opportunity you have to get launches as you said for for very little cost to the to the university to the laboratory um so it's just there's there's a lot there's a lot of open opportunity and it seems like it's something that's important for scientists to pursue to have a better understanding of of our planet what is your hope for nachos in what you know what uh, you know, Los Alamos and what nachos are able to contribute to the scientific community, um, whether it's something broader like, you know, ob- observing and adding to the data of climate change or uh, just a better understanding of our planet. What are your hopes for the experiment specifically? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, a better understanding of our planet, definitely. Uh, you know, specifically, I mean, I'm I'm really excited about the improved spatial resolution and what you can do with being able to see finer details. And we were actually fairly conservative with what kind of lens we put on the front of our uh, instrument. Uh, and that was, that was all driven by what we thought our satellite could do in terms of uh, pointing at a target uh, accurately. 
So we chose a 15-degree field of view, which is about like a moderate telephoto lens on a camera, like a portrait lens. Like, uh, But uh, there's nothing optical about uh, that says we couldn't make put a much bigger telephoto lens on, on, on our instrument. Uh, and we are... You know, expecting to get much better pointing accuracy than we were, you know, imagining when we first started this project. So we could actually do much finer spatial resolution uh, than stadium-sized pixels. Uh, that would be fairly easy to do. Um, so you know, I'm excited about being able to resolve, um, you know, this. Pollution chemistry, how these gases are formed uh, on you know, sort of this you know, neighborhood scale rather than just a big blotch that's uh, you know, one pixel of the city. Yeah. Um, being able to understand that. I, I'm very, you know, especially excited about being able to look at volcanoes and uh, in that sort of detail and, you know, not just. Uh, for eruption prediction, but for understanding of volcanoes and, and hopefully spotting things that you know, haven't been spotted before. Like lots of volcanoes have vents that open up on the flanks of the volcanoes away from the main crater. We could spot those from space. Uh, uh, we can, you know, from space, you can look at you know all these remote volcanoes that uh, you know you can't send a crew of volcanologists to every one of these things. You know, the, the big ones, the main ones that are close to cities, uh, you know, of course, uh, the geologists are keeping a close eye on those. But there's, you know, hundreds of volcanoes around the world. And being able to monitor all of them, you know, from space on a regular basis, like you could do with a constellation, uh, that would be wonderful. Uh, that would be. That's great. You're excited for the data, and and I think more so. I think what what's coming out to, to me, and and what I'm sort of locking onto is your early fascination with space and your early fascination with volcanoes. You get to explore that now. That's that's what you have ahead of you, and I think that's um, that sounds really exciting. So, uh, Steve Love, it's been an absolute pleasure to to talk with you today. Learn more about nachos, and uh, you know, after two the successful deployments of of both of the satellites, you got some very interesting data that you're going to be collecting heading your way very soon so um, it, it seems like a very exciting time and I'm, and I'm glad to be able to share that with you thanks for coming on well, thanks a lot yeah, welcome to space Hey, thanks for sticking around. Learned a lot from Steve Love today about the nachos experiment. Some great data is going to be coming down. And in fact, at this point, might already be coming down from the satellites. So Steve and his group will be making some observations and hopefully adding uh, to the great uh, scientific community what's going on with volcanoes and air quality in cities. So some interesting stuff coming uh, thanks to the opportunities on the International Space Station and these different launch opportunities. And of course, his work to minimize uh, the technology to get it on a CubeSat. Uh, you can check out nasa.gov ISS for the latest opportunities on International Space Station. And in fact, there's a tab there that you can look at specifically the research 
uh, and what we're doing, and even earth sciences and earth research uh, that have been enabled through some of the opportunities aboard the International Space Station. Of course, you can check out the many podcasts we have across the agency at nasa.gov slash podcasts. You can find us there. Houston, we have a podcast and listen to any of our collection of episodes in no particular order. We have a lot of different topics that we've been covering uh, throughout these past uh, more than five years at this point. You can also talk to us and suggest topics or ask questions uh, by visiting us at uh, social media sites. We're at the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit those questions or maybe suggest some topics. And just make sure to mention it's for us, though. At uh, Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on July 26, 2022. Thanks to Will Flato, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, and Jaden Jennings. And of course, thanks again to Steve Love for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.